0: Today's scripture reading is from Acts, book 17, chapter 16 through uh, chapter 18, verse 4. So if you could follow along with me from verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of his he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, Areopagite, and a woman named Damias, Demiris, and others with them. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because of Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well,
1: good afternoon. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And man, I I wish you guys were here to hear Aaron's announcement in Mandarin earlier for the first service. I I thought he was praying in tongues. Today, we come to our final sermon in the Go campaign. And we've been saying that the reason behind our Go campaign is that we want to be a church that sends people out just as much as we gather people in. In four years, the numbers and the attendance suggests that we've been great at gathering people, bringing people in. But what is just as important is how we are sending people out. So this Go! campaign has been about mobilizing a church that has been great at coming to becoming more and more of a church that is going and we focused on three groups of people to whom we should be going as Christians the least, the last, and the lost. And what we've been saying is that the least are specifically the Christian brothers and sisters in the church. The last is just about anyone in need of mercy the broken, the oppressed, the hurting, the poor. And the lost are those who do not know, who do not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, those who are not Christians. So today we will take one more look at the lost as we conclude our series for the Go Campaign. And I I hope to ask and answer three simple questions from our passage today. Why should I engage the lost? How should I engage the lost? And finally, where should I go to engage the lost? So why, how, and where to go to the lost? First, the why. Let me give you some context for our passage. The book of Acts documents the history of the early church. The gospel message, it spreads from just a handful of believers to thousands of people. From Jerusalem, it goes to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and by the end of Acts it has reached the very heart of the Roman Empire. And the man who spearheads this missionary movement is the apostle Paul. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul and his companions, they visit two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And in both cities they share the gospel and people come to faith. Not just Jews, but also Greeks, not just men, but also women. And both times, in both cities, what happens is there's this one group of people, this small group of people, who hate what Paul and his friends are doing. So what they do is they, they come and they, they incite protest. They, they, they rile up a mob, and th- there's essentially a riot that breaks out through the city kind of to protest what Paul and his friends are doing. So first, Paul has to flee Thessalonica. And then he goes to Berea, and things in Berea are going great, even better than Thessalonica. And then the same group of people hear what's going on in Berea. They come, and Paul has to flee from Berea to Athens. So that's where we find ourselves in our passage today. Paul is separated from his friends. He's all alone in Athens. And as you can imagine, Paul is very upset. He's very upset, but not in the way that you might think you and I would probably be discouraged because things were going so well. Things were going so well, and then it all kind of came tumbling down. Or we'd probably be frustrated and and angry at the group of people who were opposing us, who were inciting violence, who who were causing riots. But what bothers Paul? And the answer to that is the key to the question of why We should engage the lost. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for his friends at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. It says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him. In the Greek, that word for provoked, pariksuno, it's a very complex, emotional, and almost visceral word. It's to be greatly distressed, to be irritated, angered, stirred up. It's it's jealousy, inner turmoil, and heartbreak all rolled up in one. Have you ever felt this? Something happens and it just disturbs you. It's just so wrong that you feel sick inside. Was it maybe a story in the news or uh, another mass shooting or an act of terror? Was it a loved one in pain? Did you experience or witness some sort of, of prejudice or bigotry? Were you betrayed in some way by somebody you trusted You know, often we are provoked in this way by injustice, aren't we? Something that's not quite right, or something that's not charitable, something that's not equitable, something that's not fair. We look at that and we feel bothered, disturbed, provoked. But Paul does not feel this about injustice. And I'll tell you, injustice was rampant. In the Roman Empire, the, the, Roman, the Romans were brutal in terms of oppressing the people that opposed them. Injustice was everywhere. But Paul walks through the city of Athens and what provokes him to this profound level, what disturbs him is idolatry. Injustice will bother just about anybody and everybody, right? Everybody has felt that, hey, that's not right. That's not fair. That shouldn't happen. Every human being on some level feels that, but only someone who loves and cherishes God can be provoked by idolatry. Why does Paul hate idolatry? Well, it's because he loves God so much. Jesus means everything to Paul. So when he sees idolatry and sin against God, it affects him on a core level. You know, last week, Pastor Aaron preached a great sermon about compassion and about how to see people with eyes of compassion. And yes, this is absolutely how a Christian should feel towards the lost, Because that's how God feels towards the lost. But I'll tell you this, compassion is not our ultimate why. We don't evangelize because we care so darn much about people. We don't do missions because our compassion compels us to. You know, my compassion, it is way too shallow. Shallow. It will never be a sustained motivating force for a life of mission. You know, before missions is ever about other people, it is about God. There's a quote on the first page of your bulletin. Let me read that for us. It's by John Dawson. And he writes this, Don't wait for a feeling of love in order to share Christ with a stranger. You already love your Heavenly Father. And you know that this stranger is created by him, but separated from him. So take those first steps in evangelism because you love God. It is not primarily out of a compassion for humanity that we share our faith or pray for the lost. It is first of all, love for God. The greatest command in scripture, it's not missions. It's not the Great Commission. It's not even to love our neighbors. The greatest command in God's law is to love the Lord your God with all your your heart, soul, mind, and with all your everything. Jesus says in the book of Luke, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now what's Jesus saying there? He's saying that our love for God must be so much greater than our love for anyone or anything else that by comparison neighbor love looks like hate paul loves god so much that he hates sin against god he hates idolatry you know I take my my son Andy to the playground sometimes. And if you know Andy, you know that he is the most social and friendly four-year-old on the planet. He'll meet a new person and he'll introduce me to him as, Hey, this is my best friend. And I'll say, What's his name? I don't know. As soon as we get to the playground, he is off. He doesn't take a second look back. And he sees kids and he goes right up to them and, and, and tries to engage with them, play with them. And one time, he tried to befriend some older boys, maybe about six years old, and it didn't go as well. You see, Andy has a little birthmark by his right ear, and they were laughing at him and telling him that he had poo on his face. They wouldn't let him play with them, and they continued to make fun of him and laugh at him. I know I'm a Christian and a pastor, and I'm supposed to love people, but my spirit was provoked. I think Andy took it a lot better than I did. He didn't fully understand what was happening, but I was, I was upset. And even though they didn't lay a hand on him, they didn't hurt him, I've never wanted to make six-year-olds cry more. <laughs> and, and what I felt in my heart was this, how dare you? How dare you? How dare you laugh at my son, who I love so much? How could you? Who do you think you are? What brings me grief is when those I love hurt, and conversely, what brings me joy is when those I love rejoice. That is Paul's heart, and ultimately, that is our heart in missions, in evangelism. We love God so much, He means so much to me, that I am jealous, I am protective of God's glory. You know, in the Bible, whenever God is upset, especially in the Old Testament, when God is most upset, it's because of idolatry. God hates it. It grieves him. So when we see idolatry, it should grieve us. It should provoke us. We hate sin. We hate unbelief. And conversely, our greatest joy is what what brings God joy. In Luke 15, There's three parables about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And and we see the, the finder rejoicing in all three of these parables. Where God the Father dances and parties and rejoices when he is reconciled with the lost. That's our heart and missions. But here's the thing. What Christians often get wrong is... They, they're quick to decry idolatry that they see in others. Or they pass moral judgments on others while failing to hate the idolatry that is rampant in our own hearts. We don't see it in this passage, but we see the heart of Paul in his letters. Read through Romans 7 and hear his heart in his words. He says, wretched man that I am. And you can almost see him pulling out his hair and ripping his clothes. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He hates his sin. He's so disgusted by his sin. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I want to ask you a question this afternoon. How bothered are you by the idolatry that you see? Everywhere we look in our city and in our culture, we see idols. You don't have to work on Wall Street to see the rampant worship of money, power, and influence. You don't have to work in fashion or on Madison Avenue to to see the idolizing of physical beauty and sex. The gods of relationships, comfort, intelligence, moral superiority, and even family are being worshipped everywhere, especially in my own heart. You know, we share our faith with the world who doesn't know God because we can't wait for a day when sin and idolatry will be no more. We love God so much that we desperately want Every soul to honor him as God. But because we're sinners, we can never not be humble toward others. We can love them while hating the idolatry in their hearts. You know, as much as two six year olds could ever harm my son, I don't think it compares to the damage that I, as a sinful parent, will do to him. And that is our heart. But let me say this, if we say that we love God, and we're okay with idolatry, then something's wrong. If we're Christians, and we are ambivalent toward or complacent with sin, then something about our priorities and our values are seriously skewed. If the only difference between you and a non-Christian is your personal and private religious persuasion, what you identify as religiously, then you're never going to really care whether or not another person actually ever believes. If idolatry is not that bad, then God is not really bothered or dishonored by sin, and the lost don't really need to be reached or saved. The main reason for evangelism and missions has to begin with love for God and hatred for idolatry. So that's the why. What about the how? Verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The first thing Paul does in Athens before he starts talking to people is he sees the city. In order to see the idols, he has to observe the people, the customs, the social values. Before Paul reasons with people in the synagogue or marketplace, he first observes the surrounding culture. In verse 16, when it says that Paul saw that the city was full of idols, the word in the Greek for saw, it's not the simple word blepo, to see, that is commonly used. The word that's used here in Acts 17, it's Theoreo, from which we get the word theory or theorizing, and it means to perceive on a deeper level. Paul is able to see the idolatry that is underneath the surface. He is able to perceive of a reality that others might not. And once he's done that, now he engages. He engages in the synagogue and in the marketplace. And what happens is Paul gets invited to speak at the Areopagus, which is Greek for Mars Hill. And the Areopagus speaking there, it, it's, it's basically first century Athens version of a TED talk. Paul gets a chance to speak from the stage of the Areopagus, where people are gathered to hear different speakers with different ideas. And when he finally takes the stage, he's able to say to them, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. And then what's interesting here is this. Paul doesn't then go and try to fit the gospel into their culture. He begins with their culture, but then he shows them that the truth is not found within their culture, but they actually have it wrong. Verse 18, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul basically talks to three groups of people. Jews, Epicureans, and Stoics. And here are the differences between these three groups of people. Jews are monotheistic. Epicureans, they're materialistic or atheistic. And Stoics are pantheistic, multiple gods. So these are very different worldviews. And to these opposing viewpoints, Paul talks about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, Jews, Epicureans, and Stoics, they don't really agree on anything. But here's one thing they can agree on Jesus cannot be God, and the resurrection could not have happened. But Paul doesn't shy away from preaching Jesus and the resurrection, knowing full well that people will think he's crazy. Paul contextualizes the gospel, sure. He highlights the Athenian uh, religions and their poets, but he does not water down the message of the gospel. He's not afraid to talk about topics that he knows will be ridiculed and dismissed. His grand finale for his TED Talk is to highlight eternal judgment and the resurrection of Jesus. You know, you and I, we live in a world that is increasingly demanding that the church conform to culture. The absolute truth claims of the Bible, they're seen as antiquated and even dangerous. And the message of the gospel to this world, for us, it has to be the same. That every single person is guilty of sin, and must be saved. And how does God save? God saves his people through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. And the only way you can be saved is to repent, surrender, and believe in Jesus as your only Savior and Lord. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again from the dead. He is the mediator of a new covenant. Our Savior lives. That is the message. Paul's message at the Areopagus, verse 30. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul proclaims the sinfulness of man, coming judgment, the necessity of repentance, and the resurrection. All of these were offensive to the prevailing worldviews of the first century, and all of these are just as offensive to the prevailing worldviews of our culture today. I remember when I was in college, I was an undergrad. I was a lot bolder than I am now. Um, I took a class called Logic and Rhetoric, which was basically like a writing class. And everyone had to take it. It was a required course. And towards the end of the semester, my professor said, "Um, okay, everyone in the class is going to take turns and, and teach, have 10 minutes to teach whatever they want to the class. And I thought long and hard about what I was going to teach. And then finally I said, you know what? I'm going to share the gospel. And I probably would never do that today, but that's what I did. I was a, I was a college student. And um, before my, my Muslim professor, um, my class with four Orthodox Jews, me being the only Christian and a whole lot of atheists, I proclaimed the gospel. <laughs> I talked about how every single person in that room was sinful Um, that we are not okay, that we are broken, that we are in need of salvation, and that a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago was the Son of God. The Jews really didn't like that one. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And he was crucified. He died. He was put in the tomb. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And, our, my, and, and he lives. And man, they really did not like what I had to say. And yeah, there was no one who was like, oh my God, you're right, I believe. That, 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 that moment didn't happen. But all the more, even though I probably wouldn't be as bold today, I think it is important for us not to compromise that message, as crazy as it sounds. This week, all of the major media outlets reported on the death of John Allen Chow. He was a 26-year-old missionary who was killed by the inhabitants of North Sentinel Island off the coast of India. I'm sure you've heard of it. The Sentinelese people, they are the world's most isolated people group, and they have been known to attack Any person who might make contact. In 1996, two fishermen, their boat went down near the island and they washed ashore onto the island and both were subsequently killed by the Sentinelese people. Chow spent years preparing to evangelize to them. And he finally made contact with them last week. And He tried speaking to them. He tried reading passages from the Bible to them. He tried speaking their own language back to them. And they kind of laughed at him at first, and then they attacked him. They shot arrows at him, and he had to run away. He was injured, but he got away. And the next day, he actually went back, and he was killed. And his body has yet to be recovered. I spent some time this week reading the social media responses to this incident, and I knew that there would be many people who would question his motives, his methods, but the level of vitriol and outrage, it was on another level. A lot of commenters, they were openly cheering his death. Many were furious that he would put the Sentinelese people at risk of contracting infectious diseases that they would not have developed antibodies against. But more than anything else, what infuriated people was that Chow had the audacity to try to proselytize people who wanted to be left alone. The fact that he was an American and he was trying to indoctrinate an indigenous, indigenous people group, uh, it was extremely offensive to people. It was this oppressive act that made Chow deserving of his fate. This is the world in which we live. And what Paul shows us in this passage is this. We need to share our faith, even though it will not be welcomed by all. We need to share our faith even though there's going to be considerable opposition against it. We need to share our faith with boldness, but here's the thing. We also need to share our faith with humility. We should expect that many will not like what we have to say, but we say it still and we say it lovingly. Paul reasons with people for days. He discusses, he debates, he takes time with people, he invests in them. He doesn't try to shove Doctrine and theology down people's throats. Philippians 3.18, we get a sense of Paul's heart. He's talking about the lost, and he says, Many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. How should we engage the lost? Like Paul, uncompromised truth, flowing tears. That's the how. The last question today is where? Where should I engage the lost? And the most obvious thing we see in this passage is that Paul engages the lost in public. He's not afraid to talk about his faith. This is obvious, but I know that in a city like New York, this is really hard to do. And I know a lot of us struggle with this. When you're a junior analyst or a first-year associate, it's hard to ask for Sundays off to go to church or a weeknight off to go to a community group. It's awkward to pray for your meal at a corporate event or a dinner with clients, isn't it? It's really hard to defend your faith in a philosophy class when, when you're the only believer and the class is openly hostile to the Bible. We don't like being public in New York City with our biblical views on sexuality or gender identity because we don't want to be viewed as intolerant or as bigots. It's so much easier to, to slide under the radar and to make religion a private, a personal, a Sunday-only thing in our lives. In verse 17, we see that Paul, every day, would go to two places, the synagogue and the marketplace. The synagogue was a religious community where theological debate and discussion, it was expected, it was was appropriate. He would spend time there reasoning with Jews and other religious people, but he didn't restrict himself to the synagogue. He also went daily to the marketplace. And at the marketplace, he would reason with whoever happened to be there. Let me say a quick word on the marketplace. When, when we think of an ancient marketplace today, we think of busy streets lined with, with vendors. They're all shouting prices and, and, and goods, loud noises, haggling, bartering, chaos, confusion. We think of it as strictly a place of commerce. But, but the marketplace in Athens, it was very different, One commentator describes the marketplace in Athens as a place with temples, law courts, state offices, public archives, libraries, shops, concert halls, dance halls, gymnasiums, theaters, and galleries. So when we think of the marketplace, it's more like our city today. You know, while Rome was the power center of the Roman Empire, Athens was the cultural capital of the Roman Empire. Athens was a city of ideas. It was arts, philosophies, education, government, commerce, mathematics, science. Athens was essentially the New York City of the first century. So Paul is at the marketplace in the heart of the the most influential city in the world at the time. And remember that this was pre-internet. Right? So if you wanted to conduct commerce, you had to go to the marketplace. If, if you wanted to hear the news, you had to go to the marketplace to hear the, the, the herald proclaim the news. Everything happened there. Philosophers debated, lawyers argued, artists created. It wasn't just a marketplace for commerce, it was a marketplace for ideas, for social interactions. So we see that Paul divided his time between the religious and the cultural spheres. Though Paul was a religious leader, he didn't spend all of his time with other religious people. He spent a lot of time out in the world. You know, one of the reasons at Exilic, why we have community groups every other week instead of every week, or we have other events quarterly instead of monthly, it's because we don't want all of your time spent here. We don't want to monopolize everybody's time what we're trying to do here is we want to equip our members to go and live in this great city. We want you to be in the synagogue, but also in the marketplace. In the church and in the city to engage with the lost, with anybody who happens to be there. But another fascinating wrinkle to the story is that God operates on a very different wavelength than we do you see on a human level act 17 is just this incredible achievement for the gospel to go from a ragtag group of uneducated fishermen to paul speaking at the areopagus we done made it that's remarkable christianity has has reached a level of cultural influence that would be a milestone in the growth and spread of the gospel yes wow paul And normally, an invitation to the Areopagus, it would lead to bigger and better things. In our world today, after a stirring and controversial TED Talk, Paul might have signed a book deal. He might have been invited to other events, speaking engagements, interviews. But what does Paul do after this? After just a few months in Athens... He leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth, which although is a larger city than Athens, nowhere near the influence of Athens. He goes to Corinth. He meets a lovely couple named Aquila and Priscilla who were tent makers. And that's actually what Paul used to do. So Paul stays with them. Oh, you guys make tents? I used to make tents. And you know what he does? For a year and a half, Paul makes tents. A year and a half, he makes tents. After speaking at the Areopagus, after reaching those heights, a year and a half, he works with his hands, and he works hard. Yeah, he continues to reach out to people in the synagogues, but most of his time is spent working. And I say this because for most of us, probably all of us, evangelism is not going to take place on a TED stage. It will not take place at the highest centers of influence, even in a city like New York. For most of us, we will live in the city, we will work hard, and we will engage with people as we live our everyday lives. That's what evangelism is going to look like. That's what mission is going to look like for most of us. And perhaps for some of us, it may even mean leaving New York City altogether. Paul might have been scratching his head and wondering, why would God stop all of this momentum and influence and and send him to Corinth to make tents? Corinth was like this blue-collar city. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. If God was after likes and followers, Jesus would have been born a Kardashian instead of in a manger in Bethlehem in the first century. You know, for our Go campaign, we've introduced these numbers, 1%, 10%, and 100%. We want 100% of our church supporting missions and involved in missions in our city and in our world. And we are praying specifically that 10% of our church would participate in short-term missions in the future. We have our first vision trip to Cambodia in February, and we're praying for many more trips in the future to see what God is doing globally. But a number that we're very excited about is 1%. And we are praying that 1% of our church commits to long-term global missions. It may seem crazy to leave an influential city like New York and move to Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Africa. But God has people there. And remember that God loves the poor, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the weak. God has people around the world who need to be reached. You know, you may dispute John Allen Chow's mission strategy, his methods, but I, I don't believe that his life was given in vain. You know what I did uh, this week is I read some of his diary entries and his letters. And I saw, at first, I, I thought he was just this action junkie who wanted to reach this unreached people group. But the more I read, the more I saw that for years he had a heart for these people. And you know what else I did this week? is I prayed for the Sentinelese people. People I didn't know existed last week. And as I was praying, I came to this realization. Right now, at this very moment, hundreds of thousands of Christians around the world are pr- also praying for the Sentinelese people. People who the world did not know existed. Now, hundreds of thousands of Christians around the world praying for them. Why? Because... One man, one man, John Allen Chow, loved his God so much that he wanted God to be known by people who didn't know him. So much so that he would give his life for them. My hope and prayer is that we would be a church with that same heart, that same passion for God and his gospel. May we be a church that is going, going to the least the last, and the lost. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that though we were lost, we have been found. Through no virtue, through no merit of our own, but purely by your grace, you saw to save us. And I pray that we would also, out of our love for you, tell others about who you are. Let the world know that you are close, that you are not far off, and that we would be a church that goes, that goes to the ends of the earth, that goes to our city, that goes to our offices, that goes to our families, that we would be a church, a people who go to the least, the last, and the lost. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.